I'll stand with me as we rise to read our sermon text this morning. I hope you have a Bible, and if you do, you can turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, is where we are today as we continue our morning series of studies through John's Gospel, and we come to the second half of chapter 14, picking up where we left off last week. So let me read verse 15 through the end of the chapter for us, and then pray for the Lord's blessing, and then we'll begin together. So listen once again as the Lord speaks to you through his gospel. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, And will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, and I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. And in that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but The fathers who sent me, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. And now I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray again. Lord, we know that you are our portion. We pray that you would deal bountifully with us today, that we may live and keep your word. That by your spirit, you would turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life in your way. Do let your mercy come to us in your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We may be seated. It's that time of the year where I find myself increasingly spending hours each week reflecting on the 12 months of this last calendar year. I don't know if any of you are like that in your own life perhaps of introspection. You know, I've been thinking about various memories that our family has made this year that I trust will be something like lifelong treasures to 
our children. I think of those things that we have done, those things that we haven't done. I think about where we've been and where we're going. As I was even out running earlier this week, I was thinking about various things that we had seen this year, various things that we had heard this year, and even was thinking about various things I had read this year. And it was on that last point that I I realized that this year had been rather unusual in my reading experience because so much of what I have found so edifying this year had come almost exclusively through a very particular genre, uh, which is letters. I've read lots of letters that old pastors or old church leaders wrote and decades and centuries past, and perhaps the reason I was thinking about that, because one day earlier this week, I was combing through the correspondence of an old Christian evangelist and Presbyterian pastor named Francis Schaeffer. Uh, Some of you know his name in the mid-20th century. He was one of the most influential voices in American Christianity, not just in defending and articulating the faith, but often bringing people to the faith through a very special ministry he had in this Swiss chalet in in Europe. And I was reading this letter that he wrote in 1954 to a pastor in his denomination, and, and Schaefer was remarking with noticeable discouragement about what he discerned in the American church of his day as a church altogether too taken with what he called organizational machinery. And he continued in that letter by saying, So often we put the machinery in the place of the Holy Spirit, feeling that if we can just get organized enough, then the thing is sure to go on and be successful, namely what we're doing in the church. And he said, Of course, it's all very wrong, and not just wrong, but it's wicked. We must realize that it's only the Holy Spirit who can give the power, and we must realize that the only motivation which pleases our dear Lord is love for him. And it's a truth that is very much almost taken from the text before us in John chapter 14 this morning, that the only way we can go about pleasing God is living in love for him. The only way that we can go about living in love for him is through the very power of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to pick up again Jesus' table talk to his disciples There in the upper room, and it's important that we realize how it really is a continuation from where he left off last week. If you glance back to verse 1 of chapter 14, all of this beloved chapter began with a simple summons where he told the disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. So students, you need to remember why exactly it was that the disciples were so discouraged and distressed. They were disturbed in their soul that night when Jesus was talking with them. It was only a few seconds before, in our Bible, a few paragraphs before, that he had told them there were three things getting ready to happen, three things that had stirred up trouble in their hearts. And I trust you might remember what they are. He had said that there was a betrayer in their midst, namely Judas. He didn't say by name, but it becomes clear enough, doesn't it? There's a betrayer in their midst whose deceit was going to lead to disaster. And then at some point near the end of that discourse, Peter, ever boastful, hears a word of warning from the Savior that is, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. So there's this betrayer's deceit. There's Peter's denial 
But what's clearly grieving their heart most in that moment is that they had heard Jesus say he was soon going to depart from them. And so he came early on in chapter 14 and said, don't let your hearts be troubled. I know the way to God. Yes, I'm departing from you, but I know the way to God. I have revealed the works of God. And he said even at the end of our section last week that I bring about the will of God. And you'll see at the end of our section today, it has that bookend corresponding command. Look again, verse 27 in chapter 14. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And what Jesus is going to begin to tease out in the course of this part of the discourse today is not just further reasons for comfort, further reasons for encouragement. He's actually going to begin to tease out something that comes to full clarity in chapter 16, which is not just, guys, I'm going away. It's, guys, it's better for you that I go away. Because if I don't depart, you won't receive the helper. You won't receive the Holy Spirit. So he's continuing to try to give these troubled hearts comfort and truth, and he means to comfort them primarily today in who the comforter is. And it's probably a good principle, isn't it, for all of us to remember in our own life in Christ that you, I don't think we'll ever meet a person whose cup of encouragement is truly overflowing. You know, a person that doesn't need to be encouraged, a a person that doesn't need to be comforted, uh, such as the nature of the Christian life, isn't it, that we often meet people who are full of suffering, perhaps even in silence, full of difficulty and hardship that we know little about. And so, troubled hearts, uh, they need comfort. And Jesus means to give you more comfort today in the Holy Spirit Uh, the third person of the Trinity that has the title here in our passage of the Helper, which we'll think more about in a second. And so what I want to do from this passage is give you a series of truths about the Helper. Um, I'm going to work through the passage before us today, not so much in our typical fashion, what we might call like chronological exposition, verse by verse. I'm going to give you something more of a theological exposition of the passage as I want to bring out six truths about the Helper, six truths about the person of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you might have grown up in a church, you might have grown up in a tradition that didn't make much about the Holy Spirit. Well, here's a text that makes much about the Holy Spirit. Uh, You might have grown up, however, in a church or a tradition that made much about the power of the Holy Spirit, His manifestation and His strength and His ability in the Christian life. But I want you to see how The perfection of our Savior's teaching here focuses first on the person of the Holy Spirit. And later on in the discourse, Lord willing, in a few weeks, we get more to the work of the Holy Spirit. But of course, you can't always so easily separate those things, so we're going to think about both along the way. So I've got six simple words to help us in our theological exposition. The first word, and I want to show you, is reception. Look at the reception of the Holy Spirit according to the end there of, or sorry, the end of verse 16. In our passage, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. If you skip down to verse 26, he says, The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. So the simple theological truth that you need to see right from the outset is something we even confessed already in our worship service, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. But it's important that you recognize Jesus uses a 
a technical term here for the Holy Spirit. ESV translates it as helper. It's just the Greek word from which we get the word paraclete, if you've ever heard that word before, that title before. The Bible in front of you may have him as comforter. The Bible before you may have the Holy Spirit as counselor. All of those are useful translations too. It seems like Jesus is taking very much this this idea of the Holy Spirit as, as helper from something of the first century law court, the legal world of Jesus' day. Because let's say you got in trouble with the law. In that time in which Jesus lived, it wouldn't be like you would walk down the street to the law offices of Baruch, Bartholomew, and Barnabas. What you would do is you would call on a close friend of yours who knew you best to be your counselor, to be your advocate. So when you had to appear before the judges, this person there as your counselor and your advocate would be able to say, I know this person best, better than everyone else. I promise this person is innocent. You can trust what this person says is true. And although there are, I think, a number of different things in the course of Jesus' idea here as the Holy Spirit being our helper, our counselor, that don't exclusively relate to that legal background in the first century, surely it's most helpful for us to recognize here at the beginning today that who knows the Son best but the Holy Spirit? Who therefore can speak on His behalf best but the Holy Spirit? He says, you're going to receive from the Father. You're going to receive from me this Spirit, But you notice again, the end of verse 16 uses a particular word that's helpful, where he says, the Lord Jesus does, the Father will give you another helper. So he's saying, you already have a helper. You already have a counselor. You already have an advocate. And John, who wrote this gospel in his first epistle in chapter 2 of 1 John, says, we have an advocate when we have sinned, Jesus Christ the righteous. So part of the good news of the gospel is that every Christian believer has two advocates. The Son seated at the Father's right hand in heaven, who always lives to make intercession for us. And the Holy Spirit, the helper, dwelling within inside us to plead Christ's case within our very heart, to bring us to greater holiness and truth. So there's reception of the Holy Spirit. The second word that I have in mind here is election. So election by the helper, you notice verse 17, he says, this is even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells in you and will be with you. Skip down to verse 19, he says, yet a little while and the world will see me no more. So he's, he's talking here, it's pretty important in Jesus' mind there in the upper room that there's this profound distinction that exists between the disciples and the world. Here in this text, the disciples' reception of the Holy Spirit, election in the Spirit, and the world, of course, who doesn't know the Holy Spirit. And one of the disciples, just as it was last week with Thomas and Philip speaking up, here it is, Judas children, the good Judas, because the text says, if you glance down to verse 22, not Iscariot, uh, Judas says and questions, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So you see, there's a distinction in 
election who receives the Holy Spirit? The disciples and the world. How is it that you're going to manifest yourself not to them? Because for a normal disciple, probably sitting there around the table with Jesus, their expectation, we've talked about this enough, I trust, already in our study of John's gospel, that their expectation was when Jesus brought in the kingdom, that all the world was going to see it. That the messianic reign, when it dawned upon Israel, would be something all the world was going to see. And here he's saying in the course of this passage that the day is coming, but it's a day coming that the world's not going to know, the world's not going to receive, the world's not going to participate in, and Judas is confused by it. And it's certainly underscoring for us, again, that reality that the Lord has elected his own children for whom he pours out his Spirit, into whom he pours out his Holy Spirit, that the world cannot and does not know the Holy Spirit. If you know anything about Jesus' early, earlier ministry, He would often perform miracles, even in a couple of distinct, significant places. He performed miracles, the text says, in the Spirit of the Father. And what did the world attribute the power of that miracle to, but the Spirit of the evil one? That they don't know the Holy Spirit because they're not called of God. They're not filled of God. They haven't received the Holy Spirit. So there's reception and election Thirdly, that I want you to see, there's adoption by the Spirit. And notice verse 18. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The kids and I were watching. Emily was there in the room. I guess it was just yesterday. Weren't we watching something of someone running through the mountains? And uh, I was thinking about later on in the evening about different times in our family's life where we had had these memorable hikes through the mountains, and sometimes with little kids, some of the most memorable hikes through the mountains are just the amazement that we made it all out alive because of the nature of the hiking and the uh, pursuits of some of the children and their climbing. And there was a few years ago that we were hiking in one particular place, and we were friends, and our children had kind of divided with their friends, and three of them in particular had gone off to a certain area, and at the appointed time when we were coming back together and we were going to be departing for lunch, well, only two of the three kids returned. And I asked the two of the three that returned, hey, where's your brother? And as this so often happens, you know, they kind of looked at each other, and they looked at me, and what brother? <laughs> and... You're thinking as a father, well, the one that went with you, that we told you, because he's only about five years old, keep an eye out for your brother. We don't know where he is, is what they said. So off I went, and, you know, minutes passed by. You know, you know you're eventually going to find him as a father, but it took quite a while to find him, and eventually I found him. He was, like, kind of cowered in a seated position in this cave-like structure, and I said, the first thing was a question, son, what are you doing? And he said, I thought everyone left me. And I said, son, we don't ever leave you. And Jesus is speaking here to disciples, isn't he? He's just said, I'm leaving you. But don't feel as though I have left you. I'm not leaving you as orphans. And of course, in this room, some of you might actually be legally orphaned. But you know, don't you, how easy it is to be emotionally and spiritually orphaned in life. It might not be parents that have left you. 
It could be children that have left you, a spouse that's left you, friends that have left you, church members that have left you. And Jesus is speaking to these men who would understandably feel orphaned at his pending departure. And he says, brothers, good news. I'm not leaving you orphaned. Why? Because the Spirit, the Helper, is coming. You'll see again, he says, verse 19 and 20, Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also live. And in that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Uh, We don't have enough time to pursue this in great detail, but the day to which he's referring to there is that day of Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out upon his people. And he's saying, it's going to be in that day you are going to know definitively, as even the later New Testament will speak about, that the Spirit comes who is the Spirit of adoption for God's beloved people. So take encouragement even in here today if you feel the trouble in your heart welling up because you feel as though you have been orphaned. Jesus says, for those that belong to me, no, I am with them through my spirit dwelling within them. And what a tragedy it is if you were to leave this place this morning genuinely orphaned spiritually through your unrepentance and unbelief. You reject the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore you have not received that spirit of adoption. You find yourself not part of God's chosen people But the good news is that, of course, he's given us help along the way to instruct us in the way of truth. So that's the fourth word I've got for you this morning. So we've got reception, election, and adoption. Fourth is instruction. Instruction through the helper. You'll notice verse 17 again, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit, the helper as the spirit of truth. If you glance down to verse 26, he says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father... I will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And this is a a promise. This is an assurance, no doubt, of the Spirit's instruction that applied most originally to those apostles. Consider it in this way, students. If you read through the Upper Room Discourse, written by the Apostle John, it's a lot of words that, that he remembered Jesus said on that night as he wrote it many, many decades after Jesus actually said it. How is it that we have confidence in this illumination of the scriptures there through the Apostle John, but through the Holy Spirit, bringing everything to John's remembrance, that he might write it down even for our very instruction? How is it that these same men there in the upper room, so troubled in their soul that they're not wanting to leave the room, that only in a few weeks' time are going to start preaching sermons that shake up the entire world, but they're instructed by the Holy Spirit. He's bringing remembrance of the gospel to mind. How is it these men begin to look into the Old Testament and now see all the, the types and shadows of the Savior there present in the Old Testament scriptures now finally come to light? Well, The Spirit's instructing them. Uh, But we, of course, don't want to limit the truth of what Jesus says here only to the apostles because isn't it true that we gather as God's people, we live as God's people that so often forget God's truth, find even God's word confusing us? Has he not poured out his Holy Spirit into the hearts of his people that 
the Spirit might instruct them in the truth as it's found in Jesus Christ, that he might bring to remind our, our mind the things that we have so often heard. There's an absolute necessity, isn't there, in our life, in our minds, attention, hearts, affection for the Holy Spirit. Yeah, one of my favorite preachers is long gone, but not forgotten in certainly our kind of circles, a man named Charles Spurgeon. He was said to ordinarily on a Sunday when he preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle to utter a six-word prayer as he walked up to his pulpit. So in the Metropolitan Tabernacle at the time, 5,000 people were seated in the gallery, which is an enormous room now, especially back then. And, of course, because you didn't have amplification like a microphone, you kind of built the structure in such a way that people were as close as possible to hear it, which often meant if you were going to get 5,000 people into the room, you had galleries that would go up. And in order for the preacher to be seen by the galleries going up, the pulpit itself would be quite tall. So, when Spurgeon would walk up to his pulpit ordinarily on Sunday mornings, he would have to climb multiple stairs. And it was said that as he would ordinarily climb each stair on Sunday mornings, he would pray a simple six Word prayer. Really, it's more of a declaration, I trust. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Next step. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Next step. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Surely it's not without any coincidence that this man preached with unusual power in the Holy Spirit. As he desperately needed the Spirit's inspiration and illumination for his preaching, isn't it true that every time that we rise every single morning, that we take steps from our bed, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Instruct me today in the way of truth. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Bring to my remembrance those things that I dare not forget today, lest I not walk in the holiness without which no one will see God. And it's that holiness that Jesus actually turns to most of all in this passage. That's our fifth word, which is communion. I mean, I know someone who once wrote something that was titled a communion of love that tried to capture something of the essence of the Christian life as this communion of love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit and how it works out in the Christian's life. You know, children, if you wanted to go through our passage and circle every time, underline perhaps, uh, every time this word love shows up, you'll see it show up ten times in our passage. Uh, let's notice a few of them. You again look at verse 15. Uh, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Look at verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Look at verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, there's that principal comfort that even began the passage with. You remember he said, I'm, I'm leaving there at the beginning of chapter 14. I'm, I'm leaving to go prepare a dwelling place for you. And now he says, guess where I even dwell through my spirit? But in the hearts of those who love me, the hearts of those who keep my commandments. And if you connect it with what he just said in verse 21, you need to realize that what he's saying is we don't keep his word and obey his commandments to merit salvation as much as it's our 
keeping of the word and obeying his commandments that manifest our salvation? And how is it that Jesus even promises to bring great goodness and blessing to his people, but as they walk in holiness, his spirit begins to work continually in their hearts to bring about that rich communion with Father and Son and Spirit in the life of God's people. You know, I hope you... Let me speak to students, perhaps, on this most directly. You might live in a a home where your parents are constantly urging you to obey. And you think, I wish they would stop constantly urging me to obey. If they're faithful, though, they will constantly urge you to obey. Why? Because if you can't obey your parents, why would you ever obey the Lord and keep his word? How is it that we most acutely, according to Jesus, most specifically show our love for him in communion, but we obey him? He's just said in a previous paragraph, the world you're going to know you're my disciples if you love one another. Further, he continues to even mature that in this week's text. Everyone will know that you are mine if, if you love me by keeping my commandments and obeying my word. You notice he even speaks about this own pattern in his life. Look down to verse 30 and 31. He says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. So, kids, that's Satan is coming. He's about ready to have his hour. But Jesus says, you'll see there at the end of verse 30, he has no claim on me. He has has nothing against Jesus because Jesus is perfect in his obedience. So, if you maybe trace through the logic in Jesus' mind there in that moment, does that mean he's going to arrest, I'm sorry, if he's going to resist the coming arrest that Satan is bringing about? Well, no, of course not, he says. Because I love the Father perfectly unto obedience even to death on the cross. You see, the end of Our passage, verse 31, he says, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Perfect obedience was found in the Son, and he's calling his people by the Spirit's power to that same loving obedience. Do you want to know what perfect obedience looks like? That a man was willing to lay down his life for his friends. That he humbled himself unto death on a cross so so people like you who haven't perfectly obeyed his word, haven't perfectly loved him with obedience, well, you can actually be welcomed into his family. People like you that deserve God's enmity, people like you that deserve God's wrath, might actually find his peace. And that's where the text goes in our sixth and final word. So we have reception, election, adoption. We have also instruction and communion. Look at the sixth one, benediction, verse 27. Peace I leave with you, Jesus says. My peace I give to you. One of the more famous Marian martyrs in England in the 16th century was a man named Nicholas Ridley. On the night of his, or the night before he was to be executed, his brother came and said, hey, why don't I just hang out with you all night in your jail cell and strengthen you for the trial that's coming tomorrow. And as the story goes, Nicholas Ridley said, no need. 
I'm going to sleep fantastic tonight. And his brother looked at him as a brother probably would, thinking, how is it that you're going to sleep so well tonight, given what's coming tomorrow, this gruesome execution? And he said, I have Christ's peace. I know where I'm going. And Jesus knows where he's going. He knows where his apostles, his disciples are soon going to go. And he, he leaves them with, with peace. It was normal at this time in the Jewish culture that when you were greeting someone or departing from someone, you would say something like, peace be with you. But, but notice that's not what Jesus says. He says something actually greater than that. He says, my peace I give to you. Of course, to say my peace presumes an ability to give peace that would belong to the long-expected prince of peace finally arriving. It's not just personal peace that he gives to his disciples. It's also experiential peace. You see the end of verse 27. This peace comes not as the world gives. Do I give to you? Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. How does the world give peace? Or how does the world think about peace? Perhaps you would agree with me that you would recognize that the world's understanding of peace is just peace from danger and duress. That's not at all what Jesus promises his disciples, is it? His people are not promised peace from danger and duress. They're actually promised the exact opposite, isn't true? Jesus says, many tribulations must come to us as we make our journey towards heaven above. So he's not giving us peace from the trouble. What is he giving us? Peace through the trouble. Isn't it one of the most striking things that when you come across a mature, godly saint going through trial and trouble, suffering and sorrow, when they seem at peace with all of it? I had that conversation not long ago with someone that was diagnosed with cancer. And someone who loves that person diagnosed with cancer said something like, I can't understand what's wrong with this person. They're just so at peace with the whole diagnosis. Trouble is coming, disciples in the upper room. But Jesus gives him that treasure store of his benediction. My peace I give to you. Peace that comes to us even now through the Holy Spirit the advocate and comforter that we so desperately need. There was another occasion when Francis Schaeffer was speaking with a friend and this person asked, what, what difference do you think it would make if the Holy Spirit departed from the American church? And Schaeffer said, no difference whatsoever. Such was the tendency in his mind of American churches to live in utter ignorance of the Spirit's power, of the Spirit's purity, the Spirit's pleasure. Well, look at how our text ends. A simple command, verse 31, rise, let us go from here. Let that be a simple summons to you today to rise and go from here, knowing the glory of the person of the helper that Christ gives to his people. That you would rise and go from here in reception of the Holy Spirit, possessing that great gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would rise and go from here in election and adoption, knowing that you belong to God. 
that you would rise and go from here in his instruction being taught in the way of truth as it's found in Christ Jesus, that you would rise and go from here prepared for a week of communion and loving obedience through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Rise, go from here. And that personal peace of Christ that he loves to give to troubled hearts. Rise and go from here. And the power of the helper, that comforter that is offered to you in the Son. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would give us that comfort that only the Holy Spirit can supply, that you would minister his mercy to us this day as we want to walk in greater love towards you, as we want to know that peace that Christ can give us. Supply it even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.